0: I've been procrastinating. It's the 10th episode, which is obviously very exciting for me. We made it to 10. I wasn't sure we were going to make it past three, to be totally honest with you. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, this excitement hasn't translated into me actually doing anything to make the episode. I did start off with a topic, but I got sidetracked by the fact that I couldn't find the film I was looking for online. Which set me off on a YouTube rabbit hole, and like, long story short, I've permanently ruined my algorithm. I was looking at my recommended videos, and I can't remember what I clicked or why I clicked it, but I started watching a channel called Nexpo, which is short for Nightmare Expo. Nexpo has 1.5 million followers, and essentially he salvages, like, odd pieces of digital ephemera from around the internet, usually horror-adjacent and makes videos that explore their meaning, uh, potential explanations, and personal theories. It's a little bit like sitting around a campfire listening to ghost stories, except the person telling them has their phone out and is asking you if you want to see crime scene photos. What I'm trying to tell you is that A, I don't know what I clicked or why I clicked it, or why I kept watching, (laughs) Uh, and B, now my YouTube recommendations are all like HAUNTED MORGUE in all caps with six exclamation points. Um but the good news is I can actually classify this as research now because while I was watching this content a lot of which draws on actual crimes I started thinking about the boom period prestige crime documentaries are experiencing at the moment and what that says about us as an audience So without further ado I'm Alex this is Pop Culture Boner the podcast edition and today I'm thinking about the true crime genre I should probably preface this by saying that I am a person who enjoys true crime. I remember when I was younger, like maybe around 10 or so, my mum had one of those very, very cheap reads, uh, like the sort of book that you only buy when you're trying to actively carve out time for yourself as a parent, but you also haven't slept for years, so you don't actually want to use your brain. Anyway, it was about the Moors murders, which for the uninitiated involved the murder of five children aged between 10 and 17 in Britain in the mid-1960s. Their bodies were hidden on the Moors, uh, and more than one of them was never recovered. I wasn't allowed to read it per se, but I remember being fascinated by the mugshots on the cover and sneaking chapters when mum wasn't looking. It really cemented a sense of dread in me, given that the victims were my age and lost forever. But I couldn't stop reading, which would become something of a theme when the internet made grim treasure troves of stories more readily available to me. Uh, I was a delightful child, in case you were wondering. All this is to say that this podcast is not coming from a place of judgment, necessarily, or at least any judgmental tone is very evenly applied to myself as well. True crime as a genre isn't new, and neither are the wildly different ways of reporting on it. Compare Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, for example, to a show like Forensic Files. These are two very different pieces of media that ostensibly sit under the true crime umbrella, but despite existing as a genre forever, there's definitely some sort of evolutionary boom happening now. There's been a huge increase in prestige TV programming in the genre. Like, true crime is no longer that pulpy read that I picked up as a 10 year old. It's not necessarily shameful to admit that you spent five hours of your life watching content about a murder from every possible angle, because it's kind of in vogue. It's won awards, people are talking about it at work. And then at the same time, there are strange little pockets of the internet dedicated to crime in much different ways. They fluctuate between devotional, investigative, and sort of morbidly curious, all of which have their own degrees of insidious undertone depending on who's doing what and where. So I thought we could have a look at true crime in mainstream media versus true crime on the internet. What's different? What stays the same? One of the things that hangs over the genre of true crime in the black and white land of social media discourse is a question of ethics. How ethical is it to consume the worst moments of someone's life as a form of entertainment? And even more dubious, how ethical is it to focus on the perpetrators of these crimes themselves? And look, when you lay it out like that in 140 characters or less on Twitter, the answer seems pretty cut and dry. It's a fucked up thing to use as a form of entertainment. (laughs) But like I said, I'm not here to paint with a judgmental brush, at least not completely. Um, Generally, I think human beings have an interest in the grim because we kind of use it as a comparison point for our own lives. As sort of like proof that we're going okay and a note for what to avoid. If you're listening to this and going, but Alex, I hate horror and true crime and gore. This definitely isn't me. Ask yourself when was the last time you dragged yourself away from the 24-hour news cycle? What's that? Never? You've never successfully dragged yourself away from the 24-hour news cycle? Congratulations, you're just as morbid as the rest of us. It's kind of tempting to get into a discussion on audiences when trying to think through true crime. Because when you look at audience statistics, it's a genre that's overwhelmingly popular with women. There's a 2010 study by staff at the University of Illinois that indicates that some, like, 70% of reviews left on true crime books on Amazon are left by women. Given that women are often more likely to be the victims or survivors of violent crime, it feels like there's a line to draw there. Like, maybe women want to know what's possible in the world so that they have a better chance of surviving it or something. But human motivations are complicated, and like I said, the genre is old. Like, one of the interesting things that I learned while researching this episode was that way back in 1897, William Randolph Hearst, in a bid to sell more newspapers than Joseph Pulitzer, yes, that Pulitzer, formed something called the Murder Squad. (laughs) They were essentially like a band of roving reporters who did, like, police work while also operating completely outside the law, and then packaging it up for a waiting public. The point is, like, audience thirst has been there forever. So I think rather than asking, is this okay, it's probably more interesting to interrogate what's changed in the production values and the impact that that has on audiences. Writing for Vulture in 2018, Alice Bolin who's the author of Dead Girls, Essays on Surviving an American Obsession, explores the wave of so-called prestige true crime TV and the distinction between highbrow and lowbrow true crime. The highbrow that she's referring to are things like Netflix's Making a Murderer or the podcast Serial. Now, Serial is often credited with, like, kicking off the current wave of true crime obsession and it remains the most downloaded podcast of all time. Lowbrow is the type of thing that you'll be familiar with if you've ever clicked past Making a Murderer on your Netflix list. Things like forensic files, which I mentioned earlier, or titles that are kind of really bluntly descriptive, like Occult Crimes or Nurses Who Kill. I am something of a connoisseur of these types of lowbrow true crime shows. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but I don't sleep much, and they follow this kind of really repetitive formula that doesn't actually require you to use your brain in order to keep up. So it can be 3am and you can be fully zoned out, and you can tune back in and just have the entire story reiterated to you from start to finish, complete with reenactment and bad wig. It's the lowest of the lowbrow, but I have watched just ever so much of it. (laughs) Bolin thinks that these shows are somehow more honest to watch than the new wave of highbrow true crime. In failing to hide the grim details behind really slick production values, at the very least they kind of manage to keep the audience close to the reality of what they're watching. Highbrow true crime, on the other hand, she thinks is engaging in the same storytelling tactics but with more real-world consequence. So I'll give you a quick quote. Uh, She says, that is maybe what irks me most about true crime with highbrow pretensions. It appeals to the same vices as traditional true crime and often trades in the same melodrama and selective storytelling, but its consequences can be more extreme. Adnan Saeed was granted a new trial after Serial brought attention to his case. Avery, that's Avery of Making a Murderer, was denied his appeal but people involved in his case have nevertheless been doxed and threatened, I've come to believe that addictiveness and advocacy are rarely compatible. If they were, why would the creators of Making a Murderer have advocated for one white man when the story of being victimised by a corrupt police force is common to so many people across the US, and particularly people of colour? It's a fair call. Audiences are very interested in the individual instances of crime explored in great detail, but Prestige TV is significantly less interested in the systemic problems that these crimes represent. If I was being generous, I would say this has something to do with the fact that making the stories individual humanizes the consequences of systemic problems, but then that doesn't really account for the choice of subject in things like Making a Murderer. The other point Bolin raises about real-world consequences is something that's really interesting to me, particularly in the aftermath of my YouTube rabbit hole. Beyond impacting the legal proceedings for those already in jail, shows like Serial, which have a particularly intimate tone, also had the consequence of turning some audience members into, like, amateur sleuths. They viewed the ambiguous nature of the crime as laid out by the show as something of a challenge. They could investigate along with the show, develop their own theories, and do their own research. This, of course, is not actually the intention of Serial. Serial presented itself as a serious, in-depth look at a crime and its consequences. But the ambiguity served not only to make the show incredibly addictive it also served to generate a type of fandom. And that fandom operated in the way that most do. They examined and re-examined the content, put forward their own ideas, argued and participated. It seems weird to use a word like fandom in this context. Online fandoms for TV are normally discussing fictional characters, right? They're making corrections, projecting their feelings... The source material becomes like a puzzle that fandoms are trying to solve. They pull it apart over and over again to try and find new angles and eventually make their own version of perfect. This kind of intense online fandom applied to true crime has the same effect. People dissect the evidence presented to them over and over to try and reach a conclusion except instead of writing Sex in the City fanfiction where they're a group of lesbians trying not to sleep with each other's exes or whatever, people are driving the route the killer took the morning of the murder to prove that it can't be done. That's not to say that there haven't been online fandoms for true crime prior to this, although I doubt they would characterize themselves that way, and honestly I don't actually know if it's fair for me to do so either. True crime communities can generally be divided into two categories, those concerned with the victims and those concerned with the perpetrators. The first category are the type of like, puzzle solvers that I mentioned earlier. They seem to be motivated largely by a sense of justice. Uh, they want to right a wrong or like reach a conclusion. I think the most famous example of this type of person is Michelle McNamara. Michelle ran the blog True Crime Diary for many years. True Crime Diary's mission was, according to its website, to find the angle others have overlooked. True Crime Diary is not interested in looking back at notorious criminals and saying, wow, we're interested in looking at unfolding cases and asking, who? If that name sounds familiar, it's because Michelle McNamara was responsible for several major breaks in the Golden State Killer case. Joseph James DeAngelo, or the Golden State Killer, was a former police officer responsible for over 100 burglaries, at least 50 known rapes, and 13 murders in California from 1973 to 1986. McNamara was fixated on his crimes because there was such an overwhelming amount of evidence, including DNA, fingerprints, and voice recordings, but no recorded conviction. Before her death in 2016, she was working on a book, which would eventually be released in 2018, as I'll Be Gone in the Dark. I've obviously read the book. I wasn't lying about being into true crime. In it, she references the hundreds of internet sleuths who helped her cause. People whose motivations were simultaneously this sense of justice and a burning need to put all the pieces together to reach a conclusion. In fact, part of her book was finished posthumously by one of those self-styled digital detectives. Although this is a famous case with a very public outcome, it's not an isolated online community. It's an example of something that's actually surprisingly widespread. But when public interest is tweaked by something that has become as much of a cultural phenomenon as serial did, the amateur sleuthing has less desirable consequences with people reaching out to witnesses and family members who initially refused to participate in the series and harassing public officials to follow up on their own leads. Then there's the flip side. There's people who are primarily concerned with the perpetrators. These are the people that look back at notorious criminals and say, wow, as True Crime Diary would put it. Ryan Broll calls this phenomenon dark fandom and defines it as, I'm quoting here as well, Communities of fans who identify with or otherwise celebrate those who have committed heinous acts such as mass or serial murders. Brawl's work is specifically examining self-identified Columbiners. That's people who are obsessed with or enamored with the Columbine high school shooting in 1999. Brol notes that members of this online community participated in it in ways that mirrored more traditional fandoms, where they divided out the two shooters into character archetypes and developed theories in relation to the massacre. They had developed a whole community on Reddit around their idolization of this specific school shooting. Now, I realized to those of you who are not extremely online, that's extremely online with a capital E and a capital O, the idea of that kind of community existing on a fairly popular social media network is probably so abhorrent that it borders on incomprehensible. I want to assure you that you're probably actually never that far away from it. I once did some accidental clicking on Tumblr, and about three steps from the completely innocuous place I started, I ended up on a blog that had Dylan Roof, who's that Nazi piece of shit who killed nine people at a Bible study at one of the oldest black churches in Charleston. An edit of that guy in one of those flower crowns that people usually put on boy bands and it had the caption baby boy underneath it. These people just exist and they are very happily publicly posting on the internet. What I thought was particularly interesting about Brol's study was that many of the people involved in the community seemed to be people who were coming to terms with the consequences of Columbine. There were American school students who'd learned about the event in school and were fascinated by its impact on their daily lives, or they were people who were young at the time of the crime and who had been deeply impacted by seeing the waves of reporting. It may not be the case for every so-called dark fandom, but there definitely appears to be an element of trying to make it make sense. I can't really tell whether I remember Columbine happening, it happened when I was nine, or whether the security footage from inside the school is now just such a ubiquitous part of the reporting that I've just integrated it into my memory. But the horror of seeing teenagers huddled under tables while their classmates stalk through with automatic weapons is just something that lives in my brain now. So on some level, I can kind of understand the desire to hyper-focus on it to try and sort of understand it and make it make sense even when no meaning really exists. Which brings me back to the YouTube rabbit hole. I mentioned at the beginning that this channel I've been watching, Nexpo, often picked up weird pieces of digital ephemera as its subject. They have this series called Disturbing Things from Around the Internet, which perhaps unsurprisingly does exactly what it says on the tin. Intercut in between these weird art projects that form part of bigger alternative reality games and clips claiming to have captured ghosts moving furniture are things like a murder caught in the background of a Snapchat or the dispatch call from someone quietly begging police to please come quickly because there was someone in the house before the voiceover tells you that the caller was found dead in their home. I was struck by just how much video and audio of crime in action is available on the internet, there to be sliced together into a video supercut and put on YouTube. When we're thinking about highbrow and lowbrow true crime, the instinct is to say that this doesn't really fall into either category. It's not well cut enough to be prestige highbrow, and it's not camp enough to be like lowbrow fun. The fun here is obviously an inverted commas. So, what is it? I think as horrifying as it might be to admit, this might be the point of honesty that Bolin was referring to. These clips don't inspire a fandom of problem solvers, but they don't idolise the perpetrators either. Instead, what they're showing you is the part of the footage that the 15-second news clip cuts. It's the five seconds later where you see the gunman open fire. These home-cut look-and-sees are an invitation not to flinch, an acknowledgement that the kind of reporting that we get in both highbrow and lowbrow true crime is actually designed to give you kind of a terrified thrill. By watching, it's almost an acknowledgement that the editing works. You wanted to see more. Alright, uh, that's that. (laughs) Kind of a heavier episode for the 10th one, but an interesting thing to think about, I think. I actually have a whole separate train of thought about Netflix docuseries and their special brand of horror, but maybe that's another episode. Speaking of, since we've reached 10, I wanted to take this time to say thank you to my producer Wes, first of all. Uh, This thing would sound terrible without him. And secondly, I want to say thank you to you for listening. Um, This is really fun for me to make. So I'm glad I'm not just talking to myself, uh, even though right now I technically am talking to myself. I'm under a blanket on the floor in my apartment. It's a glamorous life. Um, Anyway, if you've been enjoying it, Wes and I would appreciate it if you subscribed and left us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. Mainly so that I don't ask you to do it every episode, uh, because I hate it. (laughs) It makes me feel weird. Anyway, if you do want to have an appropriately socially distanced conversation about forensic files, come find me at the pub. Peace.